You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Leviticus chapter 26, verses 1 through 5 and 40 through 46. You shall not make idols for yourselves or erect an image or pillar. And you shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase. And the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest. And the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. Verse 40. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me and also in walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies. If then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember my covenant with Isaac, and I will remember my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. But the land shall be abandoned by them and enjoy its Sabbath uh, while it lies desolate without them. And they shall make amends for their iniquity because they spurned my rules and their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spur, spur them. Neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God. But I will, for their sake, remember the covenant with their forefathers, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. These are the statutes and rules and laws that the Lord made between himself and the people of Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, we are thankful for your word, so we pray now that you would indeed mold us and make us into the people that you desire for us to be, for your purposes and for your glory. We pray now that you would search us, O God, and that you would know our hearts, that you would test us and know our anxious thoughts. We pray that you would see if there is any offensive way in us and lead us in the way of everlasting life through Jesus Christ, our shepherd and king. In his name, amen. You may be seated. Uh, Tonight is a kindergarten through third grade night. We've started these every other week uh, again. So if you're a K through third grader and you've already checked in in the back, you've got a sticker on with your name, you can... Follow your teachers out to talk about Leviticus, or not. Uh, Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, You really thought that 
Ryan was going to read chapters like 17 through 27 tonight, right? We were just going to, he was going to read for like an hour and then we'd leave. Uh, well, while undoubtedly we could have spent an entire Sunday on each of these 10 chapters, we are finishing in one week now uh, the rest of this book of Leviticus. We've taken five weeks to get kind of a 30,000 foot view, and this chunk is the biggest one. Um, I wanted to give you big picture thoughts and understanding for what in the world is going on with these laws and, sta- and statutes. These are the chapters that if you were reading Leviticus and you weren't already lost, you aren't confused and wandering in the wilderness uh, of Leviticus. When you get to chapter 17 and you have no idea what you're reading, these chapters might do the trick. Uh, but my hope is that for the rest of your life, you won't be intimidated by this book ever again, that you will be formed and transformed by it. So never again are we going to quit on our Bible reading plans because of this book, all right? Uh, now, we've actually talked a lot about the nature and the purpose of the law throughout the years. Um, in 1 Timothy 1, we considered how and why Paul might write something like this. 1 Timothy 1.8, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. We thought about that back in 2018. We spent one week on each of the Ten Commandments in 2019. Throughout John's Gospel and the book of Acts in 2018 and 2021, we thought a lot about the turnover between Old Covenant to New Covenant. So if you've been around through those years, uh, some of this might sound vaguely familiar, but all of it is important. And we do know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So how do we use it lawfully? So we're going to just ask two questions tonight. What is the law and how do we keep it? What is the law and how do we keep it? So before we get some big picture stuff here. Uh, If you just read, chapters 17 through 27 are just, like when you think of Leviticus, this is what you think of. The the statutes, the regulations, the kind of the thou shalt and thou shalt not type stuff, all right? So let me say, having said that, that first of all, the thing that we need to say is that the law is actually not comprehensive. And when I say the law, I'm meaning the law that we find beginning in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all the commands that God gives to his people. But it's not comprehensive. There are so many aspects of Hebrew life. There are so many aspects of modern-day American life that just do not appear. That It's not like a a uh, choose-your-own-adventure type thing, or like even a, uh, what am I thinking of? A a jump-to-conclusions mat? Uh, A flowchart. This is not a flowchart that gives you uh, what you should do with every single decision that comes your way. Some of those are, but there's not a case law here for every possible interpersonal interaction that you'll have with another human being. In fact, in comparison to parts of Exodus and Deuteronomy, especially the Levitical law code that we read in this book, Uh, is primarily concerned with ceremonial cleanness in regard to Israel's worship. So it seems weird to us to include so many legal statutes one after another, like we would never, if we were writing a narrative of how God has saved and redeemed a people, we would likely just kind of stick with the narrative, keep the story moving. But time and time again in these books, uh, it just stops right down. So you're reading like a legal law code. Now, why in the world would Moses, why in the world would God think 
this is helpful for us. It seems really random, disjointed, herky-jerky. Narrative section, now a section on rules and regulation. Narrative section, now a section on sacrificial guidelines. Narrative section, now more rules and regulations. But the law, appearing how and where it does in the midst of the narrative, has a very specific and useful storytelling purpose. We'll think about that purpose in just a bit. But the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, all of it, not just the legal rules, are representative samples of divine wisdom. Meaning what I was saying just a second ago. This is not comprehensive. These are representative samples of divine wisdom, of what God desires for his people. Alongside these rules and statutes are people. People like Adam and Noah and Abraham and Joseph, among others. How God's people were meant, intended, to hear God's word, to be formed and shaped, transformed by God's word and by his character. This is what's happening. So, what do we do with all this? Let me try to give us a couple of working principles for the law in its original context. Uh, First of all, and I think we've got this on the screen here, the law was given to a specific people in a specific time. Israel finds itself having just been redeemed by God out of slavery, slavery, a reality in which God reminds the people so many times, over and over and over again through these chapters. He has covenanted himself to them. He has given them specific commands and regulations for how they are to approach him and how they can dwell with him without being consumed by his glory. There is a physical tabernacle with physical objects, with specific instructions and physical sacrifices. Now, there are certainly implications for future generations. Future generations are to keep living into the realities of this law. They are to keep the same sacrificial system going because there's an expectation that they will fail, they will not live into the realities just as this generation is not. But the first thing we need to understand is that this covenant of law is not eternal. It is not perpetually ongoing. There was a planned obsolescence built into its very makeup. You know about planned obsolescence, right? Like when your phone company designs your amazing, incredible phone that is, when is it the most, when is it the fastest and the most awesome? The first day you open it out of the box, right? And then it slowly becomes obsolete, slowly becomes obsolete so that you need one every two years. The law was not built with a battery that would last for eternity. In a few minutes, we'll get to how and when, what happens when the battery runs out. But as we're reading the Bible and as we're thinking about how the law applies to, to us, we need to ask, when are we? That is, when are we in the story? It's been a couple of years since I've shared this illustration, but I'll probably keep doing it. But one of my favorite current pastors in England explains it like this, that if Frodo Baggins, now you see why it's my favorite, uh, if Frodo Baggins and Samwise Gamgee at the end of the return of the king are climbing up Mount Doom, and they're at the end of their long and impossible journey, and they're about to destroy the ring of power, and then Samwise pops up to Frodo just as he's about to throw the ring and he says, no, Mr. Frodo, no, we have to return back to Bree. We have to go to Bree. Why? Because Gandalf said, meet him at the prancing pony in Bree. What? Frodo might say, that was forever ago. That was like two books ago, two and a half books ago. Uh, 
that was a command that Gandalf gave us then that most assuredly does not apply now. That was months and months ago. Gandalf's commands at the beginning of the story now don't apply because the story has moved on. Sam and Frodo are well past the time and the place for them to meet Gandalf at the Prancing Pony. The law was given to a specific people in a specific time in the same way that if a a mother with her toddler is approaching a busy intersection and she says to her son or daughter, says, no, wait, we can't cross the street yet. And then the light or the walk sign comes up. Then she can say, now it's time to walk. She did not change her mind. She's not contradicting herself. Things have changed. The context has changed. Israel here lives in a federal theocracy. God is the king of this nation, where every member of the country has entered into covenant with Yahweh, which is why it's such a big deal for like an individual sorceress in chapter 20 to start summoning spiritual powers of another God in and amongst the people. She's in covenant with God. She can't do that. She can't lead the people astray in this way. She, along with others who deliberately abandon sexual design in chapter 18, those who deliberately reject and blaspheme God in chapter 19, those who might offer child sacrifices in chapter 20, these are all corporate examples of what we saw with Nadab and Abihu way back in chapter 10. Chapters 1 through 15 are laws and regulations for the priests of Israel. Nadab and Abihu cavalierly brought sin and death into God's presence, and they were then the recipients of like an immediate boomerang of judgment of their own sin and death in light of God's holiness. And so now that the Day of Atonement has happened in chapter 16, God's presence dwells in and amongst all of his people. The priestly realities are now applied to all of them. So chapters 17 through 27 are now his regulations for how the people can continue in God's presence as a kingdom of priests. And so here's something very important about Leviticus. Keeping the law did not make Israel holy. In Exodus 29, 43, God is very clear that in meeting with the people, he says, I will sanctify them. That is, I will make them holy. I will sanctify them by my glory. God, the presence of God, makes people holy. Keeping the Levitical law kept the people in a state of cleanness. In order to stay in his presence, they are clean by law-keeping to be used by God's purposes, but holy by God's presence to be used for God's glory. So we might say that Leviticus 19.12, which says, when God says, be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy, actually culminates and finds its end in 26.12, where he says, and I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. He will make them into his character. Second, the second thing we need to think through and understand is that these laws were also given to distinctly mark off Israel as God's people. This is a principle that would have made a ton of sense to Israel as they are receiving these laws, but then can sometimes get lost in translation with millennia of change. The reason Israel isn't to make their altars into steps in Exodus 20, you're like, what's the big deal? What's God got against steps? Well, it's because a stepped altar is a Canaanite practice of worship. The priests aren't to tattoo themselves in Leviticus 19. 
because that's what priests of Baal and other Canaanite gods would do. God doesn't want his people to be confused with Baal worshipers. And so much of this gets lost on us today. In Leviticus 19, the people are not to sew clothes from two different materials. The priests were to, the priests were to weave their Levitical, their priestly robes from wool and linen, but the people weren't allowed to do that. Why? We're like, what's God got, got against like polyblend t-shirts? Come on, it seems so arbitrary and stupid. But here's the thing, other cultures had these kind of clothing norms to mark off their, their priestly classes. Just like many other pastors from denominations or like a, a Catholic priest who wears a collar or something. This is what priests would do in the ancient Near East is blend and put together robes of different fabrics. So while we're left scratching our heads, like no more polyblend t-shirts? No, an ancient Israelite would have totally understood this. That, oh yeah, I shouldn't pretend to be a Levite. I shouldn't pretend to be a priest by wearing priestly clothes. It's like, we probably shouldn't walk around wearing Catholic collars. That would be very confusing. So here's the point. Just because you don't understand a law in 2022 doesn't mean that it wasn't totally clear in ancient times. As we've already considered, even the kosher laws, the the dietary food laws themselves, all of the kinds of animals and meats that Israel was not to touch and to eat was a way for God to keep his people distinct, separate from the surrounding nations. They had grown in number as a people who had left Egypt, and now God was giving them their own land. They were now in this land meant and intended to incubate there, to grow to be a people of meticulous precision in understanding the kinds of things that they were to eat and to consume. They were to be separate and distinct with pure worship for the God who had saved them. And yet, while distinct, they were not meant to hate the nations surrounding them or condemn the nations. God called their father Abraham in order that his children Israel might what? Bless the nations. Bless the world. Which gets us to our third principle, that first, the law was given for a specific people in a specific time. Second, the law was meant to mark off Israel as distinct. But then thirdly, that the laws were given that the nations might see and observe. How should we think about this? They might observe a new way to be human. Good Switchfoot album. That's a good, deep theological truth. A new way to live as a human. God says this in Deuteronomy 4, 6 about the law. He says, keep them, the rules, the regulations, the statutes, keep them and do them. For that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. The words of David that we use for our profession of faith tonight is all about people will come to me and ask me for wisdom. Why? Not because David's super smart, but because he is trusted in the word of God. God's law, his word is good, and people, the nations, might come to us when we are living by the wisdom of God. While reading about slavery in Leviticus 25 might make us really uncomfortable, and I get it. Leviticus 25, if you flip over there, if you just read that today, you're like, ooh, it's kind of weird. You're thinking, I thought a society made by God would be a lot better than like the pre-Civil War South. Well, here's the thing. It was. We don't have time to get through all the ins and outs of these laws for slavery, but the kind of slavery that appears in the Bible, especially in Old Testament Hebrew slavery, it was always voluntary. Did you hear what I just said? 
Old Testament slavery was always voluntary, meaning the slave had sold themselves into slavery to pay off debts. Kidnapping someone into slavery like the transatlantic slave trade would have brought the death penalty in this Old Testament law for a, a, a slave trader like that. This slavery was voluntary, it was temporary, and it, was, and it always led to freedom. Instead of someone's way of life being ruined by debt because the person who was owed this money could just have the debtor killed or put into prison for the rest of their life, this person, the debtor, could sell themselves into slavery. But then, every seven years, get this, every seven years, the debts were wiped out, completely gone. No matter how big the debt, the debt was wiped out, and there was a year of jubilee, which is the point and the highlight of Leviticus 25. Complete freedom for every slave in Israel. That kind of slavery was unheard of in the ancient world. Israel was to be different, a people of justice, of immense mercy, that they might be a blessing to the nations. And I know one sentence here may not convince you, but even the laws that seem so backward and cruel against women were a way to provide for and care for single and often potentially vulnerable women, especially when compared to the surrounding cultures around them and how they often treated women. The law is given as a, like a representative snapshot, as a way to teach Israel to be a distinct people of love, to care for the weak, to care for the marginalized, to provide and care for the vulnerable. You want to hear something that would have been outrageously countercultural in the ancient Near East? Shoot, this is outrageously countercultural today. If you've got a Bible, flip over to Leviticus 19. This is countercultural stuff for today. But the law says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap. This is verse 9. You shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. But you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Countercultural stuff. Even the eye for an eye laws in chapter 24 that seem so ancient and barbaric to our modern ears are actually laws that encourage, that demand patience, self-control. How's that? If you intentionally or even unintentionally poke my eye out, my response cannot be, well, then I'm just going to kill you in anger. Only your eye. And even then, the offender is to pay, is to give an eye for an eye or a tooth 
for a tooth. It is not intended or meant to be taken from him. I am to love my neighbor in society so much that when I offend or harm others, I will seek reconciliation. I will seek recompense, restitution. Israel is to be distinct from the nations so that they might actually bless the nations with the wisdom and love of God. If they are no different from the nations, then they are the nations. Turning from the gods of Egypt and the gods of Canaan, and now instead having turned to the God of creation, of the cosmos, then like Moses in Exodus 34, the entire nation is now to have bright faces reflecting God's glory, his goodness, his wisdom, his, ju- his justice, and his mercy. This is what God intends for his people, to encounter him and to reflect him. All right, so if this is a decent start at helping us understand what the law is, now let's try to answer, all right, so how do we keep it? The question that we've danced around but haven't quite answered is this, all right, but... Which laws are still in effect today? We've kind of danced around that for the last five weeks. But how can you say that we still shouldn't, shouldn't steal or, or murder, but it's cool to get tattoos and eat shrimp, bacon-wrapped shrimp, while you're at it? And then, if you're just picking and choosing, then still it seems totally weird and arbitrary for you to try to enforce some form of ancient sexual morality on modern enlightened cultures. Well, some Christians in the past couple hundreds of years have tried to divide the law into three sections. The so-called moral law, the civil law, and the ceremonial law. These divisions of the law. And so, the argument goes that Jesus has fulfilled the civil and the ceremonial parts with his kingdom and his cross, but then the moral parts of the law still go on today. And while that's a really neat and clean division, the Bible never does this. The Bible never divides the law into these three parts. And so it becomes really, really difficult for them, for us to determine which laws go into which of these three sections, into these three buckets. And so then we're right back to where we started in picking and choosing which laws are actually civil or are they moral? Are they Ceremonial, or are they civil? I don't know. So then we're just picking and choosing again. So how do the New Testament writers themselves deal with the Old Testament law? In fact, we could almost boil down, this is overly reductionistic, but we could almost boil down every New Testament book or letter into one underlying theme. Now that Jesus has come, what do we do with the law? That's basically every New Testament book of the Bible. Well, first of all, What does Jesus do with the law? All of the gospel writers have a deep theological interest in the law and what Jesus has come to do. Perhaps Matthew, most of all, in the first four chapters of Matthew's gospel account, Matthew goes into painstaking links to show Jesus as the fulfillment of not just the law, but the fulfillment of all of Israel's story. Through the genealogy of Jesus in chapter 1, and then uh, just as Israel went through the waters of the Red Sea and then out into the eastern wilderness for 40 years before coming back to the west and to the land of God's presence where Israel had failed before as they began their conquest. Now Jesus goes through his own waters of baptism 
And then he goes into the eastern wilderness, not for 40 years, but for 40 days, succeeding in obedience where Israel had failed. And now coming back to the west, entering the land for his own kingdom conquest. And so we've got all this in mind then when Jesus, in Matthew 5, goes up on a mountain, perhaps as a new Moses, to give a new law. And he says in Matthew 5, 17 through 20, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus says that he has come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. What in the world? You might say, absorbed. The law gets absorbed, taken into Jesus, fulfilled in him. He has come to fulfill the law, not only to keep the law perfectly in an external way, but to keep the meaning and the intention of the law, that of loving God and loving neighbor with contented joy, to take and receive God's word and obey in faith, to be the ideal Israelite, to be the ideal human who has been shaped and formed by God's wisdom and love. But how in the world can, as Jesus tells us, how in the world can someone be more righteous than the Pharisees? Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. They are keeping the law so strictly, so meticulously, in a way that you might, if we had a surveillance camera on them 24 hours a day, you might not find them ever breaking the law externally. Well, after explaining the heart behind many of the laws, not just, Jesus says, not just don't murder. Yeah, lots of people can say, well done, I didn't murder. But he's saying, not just no murder, but no internal hate. Not just external adultery. You didn't have an affair? Congratulations. That's not what the law is about. The law is about not just that, but no internal lust at all. After saying that, Jesus says in 548, to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Poof. All right, everybody, be perfect. Go out and go get them. Now, our English word perfect isn't terribly helpful here because its meaning isn't really that of being morally perfect, morally righteous. The word Jesus uses here more often means that of being complete, be whole, be thoroughly unified. Be complete as your Father in heaven is complete is whole, is unified. Jesus is saying, be complete and whole externally and internally as your Father in heaven is in actions and in the emotions and the motivations behind your actions. External and internal alignment aligned to the glory and the goodness of God. That's the kind of righteousness that God desires. Not just mere external law-keeping. Later, a Pharisee, a lawyer, came to Jesus to try to trap him, and he asked him this in Matthew 22. 
Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The entirety of the law is about loving God and loving neighbor. There are principles at work and behind every single regulation, every single statute that we read in Leviticus or in the Old Testament that ultimately gets us to a place of passion for God and compassion for people. That's what the whole law is about. But this is where remembering that the Torah, the story that we are reading here in Leviticus, is actually part of story, is actually part of a wider narrative. Jesus does not just merely fulfill the laws, the regulations, the statutes. He fulfills the entire story. If you were with us a few years ago, do you remember that when the people basically had a wedding ceremony, covenanting themselves to God at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 24? The people there, they hear the law of God and they say, yes, we will do it. We will obey, they respond to God. And they can't even leave the ceremony. They can't even leave the mountain without completely rejecting God, without completely rejecting the law. The entire narrative of Israel's future history will be that of hearing and rejecting God's word. A story of sin, of idolatry, of faithlessness, of love of self, passion for self, lack of compassion for others, of the priests turning this Levitical sacrificial system into something that benefits them, while meticulous precision in keeping the law then became the end goal of the law, while ignoring love for God. But then Jesus shows up. He comes not like other prophets and teachers showing how he relates to the law, but he comes with authority, teaching and showing how the law relates to him. Showing and saying that he is the true and better Israel. He is the true and better tabernacle. He is the true and better priest. He is the true and better Passover lamb and ascension offering and scapegoat and the whole thing. He is the one to act for Israel in distinct holiness, that he might bless the nations because they had refused their role and refused their vocation. He is the one to bring a new covenant, not one bound and sealed by law, but one that is bound and sealed by his own blood, to be the Messiah, a deliverer, not just out of physical slavery, but of spiritual slavery. The kind of righteousness that the triune God desires from his people, but then is often so willfully disregarded. Jesus, Jesus, Messiah, lives for his people. He dies for his people. He saves his people. He redeems his people. And he gives life to his people. Not to be just some like five-gallon gas tank of gasoline that the law was. Something just to keep the thing going, puttering along. A good gift, certainly but with no inherent life on its own. Gasoline is flammable, but it can't explode itself. It can't do anything in and of itself. But Jesus has come 
to bring a new engine altogether. Maybe a Tesla engine or something that doesn't even need the gasoline. That he might give his people new hearts, a transplanted new engine. That we might love and worship like him, that we might act and react like him. Not in a zapped, one-off moment in time, but over the course of our lives, formed and transformed by the word of God and the character of God, by the spirit of God that Jesus gives us with new hearts, with a new engine. And so by doing this, the apostles in the book of Acts and throughout the New Testament conclude that the law has found its endpoint. The, the law is not bad. It's not meaningless. Paul says in Galatians, it's like a guardian. It's a teacher. It's useful where it's useful, but it served its purpose. It had a planned date of obsolescence, and it's no longer needed because Jesus has gotten his people where they needed them to be. Remember, Moses is like off on the beach, sipping on Mai Tais. His job is done. Now that Jesus has done, the law is retired. It wasn't saying that all of his work that Moses did was bad. He's just retired. Now that Jesus is the new CEO that gives his life to his people. The law is not irrelevant. We shouldn't tear it out of our Bibles. There are unbelievable principles behind the law that it would perhaps do us really well to sit and think deeply about, hopefully in community, all together, thinking about the principles behind the law. I think this is what David is thinking about when he says that he meditates on the law day and night. Like, surely, David is not like memorizing like a bullet point list of the unclean and clean animals. Like, monitor lizards, no. Rock badgers, no. Oh, God, your law is sweeter than honey. (laughs) I don't think that's what he's doing. But rather, what is God teaching me about his character, about his kingdom, by giving me the law? What do the laws reveal about the character of the lawgiver? And what a God to have given us this law. That's what David is just continuing to burrow down, mine down deeply into. It's this kind of thing which Paul does in 1 Timothy 5. There's a law about not muzzling an ox when it is treading the grain. Back in the law, there's, when you are working a ox and it's like smashing grain, it's like pulling around a giant millstone or something, you should actually let it feed on the thing that it's working on. You should let him eat. Don't starve him. And so Paul sees the principle behind that law, and he applies it to paying pastors. I'm not making a plug for myself here. But that's bizarre, right? Paul's been reading about oxen in the law, and then he makes and applies a principle to what churches should do for their pastors. We begin to understand the character of God and his desires for us, to be people of generosity, to be people shaped and formed by, transformed by divine wisdom. So this kind of thing takes work. This kind of thing takes slow meditation. It takes godly wisdom. It takes community. It takes sometimes study Bibles and commentaries. You're like, what in the world? Polyblend t-shirts. I got nothing. You've worked through it with your gospel community and you got nothing. Sometimes a commentary might be helpful. But by doing this kind of work, this doesn't take us back to the old covenant law. 
but it takes us to what Paul calls the law of Christ, the law of love, of pursuing justice and mercy in our own communities and with people who surround us, the nations who surround us. If we look just like the nations, then we are the nations. Moving us into deep and actual love of God and love of neighbor as is explained and worked out in the New Testament. So, we can now eat pork, bacon-wrapped shrimp. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Why? Well, Acts 10 and Acts 15 are really helpful. We didn't just make that up and willy-nilly decide to start uh, eating pigs. One of the most infuriating episodes of my favorite TV show of all time, The West Wing. President Bartlett just has never read the book of Acts when he gets mad at people for actually throwing a football and comparing throwing a football to homosexuality. It's just not in the Bible. We no longer have to keep the Sabbath or sacrifice animals. See Colossians 2 or Hebrews 10. The New Testament is very helpful. To go back to Sabbath, to go back to sacrificing animals is, would be just like Frodo and Sam like backing down Mount Doom and just going back to Bree. Right thing at the wrong time. It would be the same as like staying waiting on the street corner in my 30s because when I was two and a half, my mom said, wait, bro, bro you're a grown man. <laughs> the, the context has changed. You can cross the street. But all that is not to say that we just get to make up a new morality. That what I think feels like love is actually love and what I think and feel is actually right. No, both the principles behind the Old Testament law and the explicit teaching of the New Testament law of Christ still still has so much to confront in our modern sensibilities, our modern ears, certainly with sexual desire and our modern proclivity to just misinterpret that just because I desire or feel something, that that reality ought to then be taken on for myself. The law has much to say about denying self, about living for God, being externally and internally aligned in action and motivation, but all aligned to the character of God. And so here's what the Torah does. The whole narrative, the law within the whole narrative, is it prepares us as readers and gets us to a point where we see ourselves in the people of Israel weak and helpless on our own. Yes, we will obey, and then walk right out of the wedding ceremony. Selfish, self-serving. The law brings us to our knees so that initially and then ongoingly we are in a state of, Lord, help me, a sinner. Have mercy, a sinner. Lord, I want to believe, but help my unbelief. Jesus, Messiah, thank you for acting on my behalf. Deliver me from the evil within my own heart. Make me perfect. Make me complete, whole, unified. Help me to more and more hear God's word and not reject it, but obey. But to be formed and transformed by the divine voice. Unite my heart and my actions so that I have one motivation. Love. And like the sweet and better wine that Jesus miraculously fills the water jars of ceremonial law rituals, he then brings joy. He brings freedom. He brings something better. Better than just rule keeping, but life and love. 
So brother, sister, friend, the law that you place yourself under now, the law that you impose upon yourself is a law of death. Have you convinced yourself that God will only accept you in days of perceived righteousness? Working yourself up in days of disciplined Bible reading and intense prayer? Working yourself down in self-condemnation for the ongoing presence of sin in your life? That you are unlovable until you are repentant or holy enough? That you will only be satisfied in yourself when you have had a flawless week of production at work. Projects completed, commendation from your superiors, hesitant to rest. You've added a new law for yourself on how you should look or the grades that you should make, and then you accuse yourself with hatred when you don't measure up. You've placed for yourself somewhere out there that finish line tape of marriage, that finish line tape of kids, a new and more distant finish line tape of a better marriage or more or better kids. You're disappointed that you haven't hit the tape yet, but the tape just keeps moving and keeps moving and keeps moving and it will for the rest of your life. And then you convince yourself that the problem is just you. That you just don't measure up. Friend, if you do not know the love of Christ, will you come to him today? You will never cross the tape, but he has. Without a mediator to bring you into the presence of God, you are on the outside. You are outside of the presence and the glory and the love of God. No matter what kind of spiritual enlightenment you may seek or even find, you do not know the God who has created you and who loves you. You have not kept God's law. You have not even kept your law, your own expectations for yourself that you impose on yourself. This is why, I'm telling you, I don't know you, perhaps, but this is why you're often so weary. You're often so frustrated. You're often so exhausted and discontent. Come to him today, all who are weary and heavy laden, and he will give you rest. And Christian, you are in Christ. You are united to Jesus. You have union with his perfect law-keeping, and you have union then with the perfect love of God the Father. You are now brought nearly and deeply into the life of the triune God. This is reality. And so after describing the once and for all single sacrifice for sins of Jesus, the writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, the holy places, not of the tabernacle. Remember, we thought about that last week. Those were just copies of heavenly things, but even better. The holy places, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who, is, who promised is faithful. The point of Leviticus, the point of the entire ministry of Jesus Christ, 
is to bring us into the presence of God. The Levitical law is not about keeping rules. To be holy means to live in full submission to the will of God, to, be, to belong completely to him. You will fail and continue to fail, but we have a great priest who brings us into the presence of God. Ligon Duncan once asked, you want proof that God is gracious? A third, an entire third of the Mosaic law is about what to do when you've broken it. Praise the Lord, his mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, new every morn, our sins they are many, his mercy is more. So keep coming to him and keep coming to him and keep coming to him and keep coming to him. He is a priest who does not get tired. Now where I left off in Hebrews 10, the next verse is about continuing to come, not just to Jesus, but to come together, to meet together as God's people. And so much of Leviticus is about the worship of God's people when they are together. So as we mentioned a few weeks ago, uh, beginning next Sunday, we're going to slow way down. And we're going to pick apart the what and the why of what we do together on Sundays. Why do Christians do this? Have you ever thought about that or is it just habit and routine? Why do you come to church? Why did you come here tonight? Is it really necessary? Why do we here at Christ Church even do what we do? Structuring the service like we do what we do. What is a church? Who are we? All of these kinds of questions uh, we'll begin next week when we think about just our call to worship specifically. What is worship? How should we think about it? How should we do it? All of these things starting next week. I'm excited for it. Something that we did five and a half years ago, but we're gonna, we all need a refresher. I need a refresher in my own heart and mind. But until then, having found our rest in Jesus, let us now once again consecrate ourselves, give ourselves wholly, entirely to God belonging entirely for him and for his purposes. Why? Because we Christians, we're bought with a price, the blood of Christ, and we are not our own. We belong to him. Maybe so. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we pray that all of this might be true, that we might be consecrated to you and belong to you by your grace, by your grace brought near through the blood of Christ. Give us wisdom to understand and discern your law. Forgive us for the ways that we are still stubborn to listen and obey. Make us your people into a people of love, a people of divine wisdom, distinct among the nations around us so that they might see the wisdom and the love of God whom we serve. So we pray all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Messiah, our deliverer, our representative, our advocate, our sacrifice of atonement, our Savior. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.